This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org to discover more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 273rd episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I am your host, Diane. On this episode, I'm bringing you another one of your favorites, Haunted Cemeteries number 11. We have five cemeteries that we're going to be looking at in this episode. But before we get into that, we want to welcome into the spooktacular crew, Alyssa, Jen, Stephen with a V, Liska, Aaron with an E, Sarah with an H, Chris with a Y-S, Nancy, Kim, Kathleen with a K, Lorna, Raquel, Kendra, Gregory, Emily, Malia, Margaret, Anna, and Kayla. Welcome, everybody. And now, this moment, Naughty. There's a legend dating back to the early 1600s about some pirates who were seen rowing a boat up the Sagus River in Lynn, Massachusetts, landing the craft and carrying a chest ashore. Several locals had seen this and they went to investigate. They did not find the chest, but they found a note that stated if a quantity of digging tools, chains, and other supplies were brought and left in the woods, some silver would be left as payment. The men returned the next day with the tools, and then the following day, they found some silver waiting for them. The place was called Pirate Glen after this exchange. Authorities eventually raided the area where the pirates were hiding, and they got three out of the four that were there. Thomas Beale was the fourth pirate, and he hid himself in a cave. He lived there only venturing to town for food on occasion. An earthquake hit in 1638 and split the cave, and part of it collapsed in, trapping Beale. This cave came to be known as Dungeon Rock. People assumed that Beale still had the pirate treasure and that it had been buried with him. They tried for 200 years to find it. In 1852, a man named Hiram Marble bought the land, and he became obsessed with finding the treasure. For 30 years, he searched with the help of his son. They funded their efforts by offering tours through the cave for a small fee. They also enticed investors, promising a share of the treasure when it was found. The Marbles never found the treasure, and eventually the city of Lynn bought the property, and it today is known as Lynn Woods. Dungeon Rock can still be seen today, but as for people spending a lifetime looking for a treasure that is just part of a legend, that certainly is odd. This history podcast is haunted. And now, this month in history.
In the month of September, on the 10th in 1898, the Empress of Austria-Hungary, Elizabeth, was assassinated in Geneva by an anarchist. That anarchist was Italian Luigi Luceni, who was a poor man full of rage. Empress Elizabeth of Austria spent a night in disguise at the Hotel Beau Ravage in Geneva, Switzerland, because the Rothschild family had invited her on holiday. The next morning, she and her lady-in-waiting walked the short distance from the hotel to the pier to board the steamship Genevieve. She usually traveled with an entourage, but this time it was just the two ladies, and they were easily rushed by Luceni as they walked on the promenade. He stabbed Elizabeth in the heart with a small, sharp file. The Empress and her lady-in-waiting did not realize that the Empress had been stabbed. They boarded the ship, and a few minutes later, Elizabeth lost consciousness and died. Her body was brought back to Vienna, and she was put in the tomb of the Capuchins. Her assassin Luceni was caught and confessed immediately. He spent the rest of his life in prison and always claimed that he had not planned to kill the Empress specifically. He had made the decision to, quote, murder the first highborn person that he would meet in Geneva, and it just happened to be Elizabeth. Cemeteries are not really a place I would seek to investigate when looking for ghosts, and many times you'll hear paranormal investigators warn you about investigating cemeteries. I don't know if they're afraid that you're going to attract some bad energy or awaken some spirits that you didn't mean to. I just don't feel like it's a place where there would be a lot of ghosts. But after years of hearing stories of paranormal experiences in graveyards, it would seem that a fraction of the cemeteries located around the world really may harbor more than just the bones of the dead. Perhaps some do stay there in spirit. So then we have to wonder, is it because they're trapped by some kind of energy? Are those spirits just really attached to their bodies? Could they be waiting for a loved one to die and be buried in the plot so that they can move on together? Is there something that has made them earthbound for a reason, and they're not earthbound to where they died, but rather to where they're buried? Whatever the reason, the swirl of leaves blowing across the graveyard grounds may be more than just the wind. A wandering soul could very well be taking a stroll among the tombstones. On this episode, we will look at the history and hauntings of two cemeteries in North Dakota, Dartford Cemetery in Wisconsin, Logan City Cemetery in Utah, and St. Louis Cemetery No. 1 in New Orleans. First, let's go way north for me to North Dakota. I have been to North Dakota once. I don't really remember much about it. We just kind of skirted into it while we were checking out things in South Dakota. But I do remember I got a shot glass there because I collected shot glasses when I was a kid. We're going to look at two cemeteries that are here. The first one is Tagus Lutheran Cemetery. This is located on Old Highway 2 in the ghost town of Tagus in Montreal County, North Dakota. Tagus had always been a small town with only around 140 residents, and this was back in 1940. By 1976, there was no one left, and Tagus became a ghost town. The only people left here are buried in the cemetery, and they number around 30. The first dates back to 1908, and the most recent was in 1927. The church that once stood where the graveyard is located was supposedly taken over by Satanists who claimed to be drawn there by a mysterious energy, and we've heard this story so many times, haven't we? Either they or some vandals led to the chapel catching fire and burning to the ground, leaving behind only a stairway that is covered over by earth. There are those that claim 
this is the gateway to hell. We've heard this same story about several cemeteries, that a stairway leading down is some sort of gate to hell, or that there's some portal within the cemetery that's a gate to hell. I've been through a lot of cemeteries, and I have yet to feel like I'm anywhere near hell. They're usually so peaceful and beautiful, I wouldn't even think of that. This legend goes a bit further, though, than a lot of the other ones in claiming that if one stands in just the right spot, they can hear the screams of the tortured souls in hell. And that is the haunting that is here, those disembodied cries. So if you ever find yourself in the ghost town of Tagus, maybe head out to the cemetery and bring your recorder so that everyone can hear the sounds of hell. Another supposedly haunted cemetery in North Dakota is located on Elm Street North in Fargo. This graveyard is known by the boring name Cass County Cemetery No. 2. It's a fairly small graveyard with around 315 burials, and unfortunately, none of them are marked. Now, they have a record somewhere because I have the names of all the people who are buried here. They just don't have any headstones. Cemetery No. 2 is one of three cemeteries that are located within Trollwood Park, and this area was once home to the Cass County Hospital and Poor Farm. This eventually became a nursing home starting in 1947 with a name change in 1962 to Golden Acres Haven. Isn't that just the perfect nursing home name? (laughs) Golden Acres? The nursing home closed in 1973 and the property was taken over by the Fargo Park District. To find the marker for this cemetery, park by the playground and take the path north towards the river. As I looked back over the records, the earliest burial I found was from 1911, and it looks like they went through to the 1940s. So I think it's pretty safe to assume that the people who are buried here died on the poor farm. And so basically what we're looking at here is a potter's field, which might explain why there's no headstones. Of course, I hope that's why there's no headstones, because they put a park here and apparently didn't move the bodies. So go figure. Rumors of multiple hauntings here would not be surprising, I would imagine. People claim to have seen multiple apparitions and to hear disembodied footsteps. There are those that swear that they have heard their name being called, which to me would be a little chilling because how do they know who you are? One of the more frequently seen spirits is that of a woman who's wearing a dark blue 19th century style dress. She's seen walking in the cemetery but never ventures out into the park. She seems to enjoy music and will more readily appear if there's music playing nearby. She loves to dance beneath a willow tree that is in the graveyard. So if you're ever in Fargo, and it's a foggy night, if you're near the graveyard, you might catch a woman dancing in the moonlight. That'd be kind of cool. Let's head on over to Wisconsin and Dartford Cemetery. Dartford Cemetery is an old pioneer cemetery that takes its name from the original village of Dartford, which became Green Lake, Wisconsin. No one is sure when the cemetery was founded, but graves date back to the 1800s. Many of the early pioneers of the area are buried here. A recent burial is for Adrian Kennedy Karsten, who was a sports journalist. He was employed for over 20 years with ESPN and covered the great outdoor games, the Tour de France, the America's Cup, and was a sideline reporter for NCAA football. He was known for wearing his trademark suspenders. He was fired from ESPN and sentenced to jail for tax evasion in 2005, and unfortunately, he committed suicide just before he was to report to jail. We also have burials of several soldiers here, and children regularly visit to lay flowers on their graves. And then there's this old mausoleum, and it's a mausoleum that's not very large. It's more like what I would call a crypt that's above the ground, and it has some notoriety. 
the entire cemetery gained some notoriety after being featured on the TV show A Haunting. The episode was titled Legend Trippers and featured three teenagers who wanted to test out a legend that they had heard about the cemetery and this mausoleum that's found there. The legend claims that if you sit on the roof of the mausoleum, a ghost will push you off. Corbin Van Buren of Berlin was one of the teens. He claimed to have been pushed off and all three teens said they saw a shadowy figure of a woman. One of the other teens said that he never even made it to the top of the mausoleum because he felt as though something were holding him down, preventing him from climbing up. Others have reported the same kind of experiences, but many residents said that they had never heard of any such legend until the episode aired. So is this just a legend that was made popular by a TV show? Quite possibly, but we actually have some other stuff that's going on in this cemetery that I think is far more interesting. People claim to see dark, shadowy figures, to hear strange noises, feel the sensation of being followed or watched, and even more weird are the claims that gravestones change or vanish altogether. Now, this gravestones changing and vanishing has been debunked by some paranormal investigators out there. So whether that actually happens or not, I leave that to you to decide. There is a legend about the Native American chief Highknocker, who once ruled and lived in the Green Lake Princeton area. He was the last Winnebago chief to rule in this area before the tribe was forced onto a reservation. Even though the tribe had to leave, it expected that every Winnebago would return to Green Lake at least once in their lifetime to worship the water spirit. This area was said to be its home. The Winnebago group also left behind mounds and other burial sites here. So there is a possibility that Dartford Cemetery is buried on an Indian burial ground. Chief Highknocker was called by this name because he wore a stovepipe hat. He'd been born in 1820 as the son of Big Shoulder, a chief who was said to have lived to the ripe old age of 106. Highknocker stayed behind in Green Lake and got along with the whites in the area making bows for the kids. On August 12, 1911, Highknocker was returning from the town of Berlin. He needed to cross the Fox River, but he had no canoe, so he decided to swim. He was drunk and ended up drowning. He was buried at Dartford Cemetery and donations paid for the boulder that marks his grave. Chief Highknocker is not at rest, though. Many have claimed to see him walking down by the river near his burial. There is also the ghost of a small girl that has been seen in the cemetery. There are children buried here who died from polio and other ailments, so there's a possibility that a child ghost would be here if there is such a thing as children ghosts. So if you're ever around Green River, Wisconsin... At least go pay your respects to Chief Highknocker. It's got kind of a cool looking marker there for him. I think it's his profile is carved into it and it looks like it even has been colored. Now we're heading to Utah to Logan City Cemetery. And this is a cemetery that I found along with this legend in Jennifer Jones book, Ghosts of Ogden, Brigham City and Logan. And Jennifer Jones is the founder of The Dead History. Logan City Cemetery is located in the middle of the campus at Utah State University. So another place that I wouldn't mind going to school because it's got a cemetery in the middle of it. How cool. And this isn't just a small cemetery. There are over 17,000 burials. The first one took place in 1865. One of the better known burials here is for Leora Thatcher. Leora Thatcher was an actress who was the daughter of a prominent Salt Lake Theater company owner, Moses Thatcher Jr. Leora was born in 1894 and she performed on stage, particularly Broadway, and on the radio, and even on television. She appeared in 3,180 performances of Tobacco Road in the role of Ada Lester. 
Her grandfather owned an opera house in Logan, Utah that burned down in 1912 and she rebuilt the building in 1921 and it became known as the Capitol Theater. She died in 1984 in Salt Lake City. The Thatcher Mansion still stands in Logan. A burial located in the very center of this graveyard is reportedly where our haunting here comes from and this spirit is known as the Weeping Woman. The monument itself depicts a weeping woman who's crouching and holding her head. The statue was made for a woman named Julia Amelia Cronquist. She'd been the wife of one of the first city commissioners in Cachy County named Olaf Cronquist. He'd been a prominent farmer as well. Several family members contracted scarlet fever with two of the children succumbing to the disease. Julia suffered from heart problems all her life, more than likely from contracting scarlet fever too. She died in 1914 at the age of 52. Many people claim that the statue was inspired by the many visits Julia made to her children's graves at the cemetery, where she wept over them. Her husband had it made in 1917 out of Barry Granite. And this is where our ghost story for this cemetery comes in. It's said that during the full moon, the statue appears to cry. The sounds of a woman weeping have been reported as well. Jennifer wrote that people have reported seeing the water for themselves running from the face of the statue on nights when there's been no rain. Others who've heard the disembodied weeping will not go by the cemetery at night anymore. I'm thinking students cutting through probably decide, bad idea. Could this be residual or the mother still crying for her children in the afterlife? Or is it really just water that's running down from rain and people just don't remember that it rained? Not sure. And we're heading back to New Orleans. The last Haunted Cemetery episode featured Metairie Cemetery in New Orleans, but it's not the only haunted cemetery in the city. Of course, that's a no-brainer. Probably the cemetery that comes up as the most haunted in the city is St. Louis Cemetery Number 1, and that's what we're going to look at now. The most obvious reason for this being coined the most haunted in the city is because it is the final resting place of voodoo priestess Marie Laveau. We covered Laveau in episode 75, so we'll only touch on her briefly here a little bit later, but she's said to be one of the spirits roaming about the graveyard. St. Louis Cemetery No. 1 is one of three Roman Catholic cemeteries which make up St. Louis Cemetery. The cemetery was founded in 1789 to take the place of St. Peter's Cemetery, which was too close to the main city. The city of New Orleans had just been ravaged by a huge fire in 1788, and the city took the opportunity to move burials to a healthier spot away from the people. And we know that there were a lot of cemeteries that were doing this around that time, and especially in the 1800s when the Victorian graveyards were being founded. They wanted to make sure that these were outside the city because they were worried about contamination, and it was a real worry, as we know today. The graveyard was laid out much like a city, and a tall wall was built around it. The property only stretches out over one square block, but it is full of bodies. There are around 100,000 people buried here. It's an estimate, but it's probably pretty close. One might wonder how it is possible to bury that many people in a small graveyard. I know when I was up in Boston that we found there were a lot of people who were buried on top of each other, and that's how they got a lot of bodies into the graveyards there. But New Orleans has some different burial customs, and that's because of where it is located, obviously. Most burials in the city are above ground in crypts or vaults because of the water table. As we all know from the tragedy of Hurricane Katrina, New Orleans is below sea level, and this means that anybody buried in the ground has a high chance of being disinterred when there's flooding. And there were a lot of coffins floating down the river and down the streets because of Hurricane Katrina flooding the city. So what families would do is buy a vault together. And as one strolls through these cities of the dead, 
they'll notice that some are very simple and others are grand. When someone died, they were placed in a wooden coffin. This was placed in the above ground rectangular slot in the vault. It'd be kept there for a year and a day. It's very important to include that extra day. The coffin was then removed. The bones were put in a bag that was labeled and the bag was shoved to the back of the vault. I've also heard that there were slots in some of the vaults and that the remains were swept back into that slot, which dropped down to a lower level. So basically all the bones and ashes of the family would be all piled up together underneath there. If multiple members of a family died in the same year, another vault space would be rented until the remains were ready to be removed because a lot of these vaults either had one or two spaces. So if you had more than that die and you hadn't had your year and a day up, you'd be kind of hard pressed where we're going to put this body. Within St. Louis Cemetery Number 1, there are also group vaults. These were sometimes purchased by larger families, but most of the time an organization would purchase the vault. Both these large group vaults and the smaller family vaults give the graveyard a real sense of being a miniature city with pathways and alleys. And like all cities, they have their poor. This cemetery has a pauper's field with unmarked graves near the back. Protestants and Jews were also buried in the back to make sure they were separated from the Catholics. One of the large group vaults was dedicated to the remains of the men who died in the Battle of New Orleans. Another pyramid-shaped tomb was purchased by actor Nicolas Cage in 2010. Not sure if he still plans to be buried there, but that was his desire back in 2010. As of 2015, the Roman Catholic Diocese of New Orleans, which owns and manages this cemetery, has closed it to the general public and charges tour companies for access. This usually runs around $4,500 per year. Families who own tombs can apply for a pass so that they can visit their loved ones. When I was in New Orleans, we took a group tour and it took us through one of the cemeteries, not this one in particular, because I think there's certain tour groups that can go into certain cemeteries and the tour group that I was with could not go into that one. So we got to see one that was very similar. I think they're all pretty much the same other than the fact that you have Marie Laveau buried in St. Louis Cemetery Number 1. But they all have kind of the same look to them, and I just love them. They're absolutely gorgeous. They're great to walk around. They're creepy beautiful, as I like to say, and lots of interesting decor to see, symbology, and they just are so old. It's really neat to go through these cemeteries. I wish that they were a little bit more open, that people could just wander through them whenever they want to, but unfortunately, vandalism has caused a real issue there. And so this is what is come from that. You can't really go through these cemeteries unless you have somebody with you. The cemetery has many notable people buried within its walls. The family vault of Etienne de Boré is here. He was a Creole French planter who, who produced the first granulated sugar in Louisiana. This made it profitable to raise sugar cane. De Boré owned a large plantation upriver from New Orleans. In 1803, the American governor of the territory appointed de Boré as the first mayor of New Orleans. There's also the family vault of Paul Morphy, who was a world-famous chess champion. He was the greatest chess master of his era. He only competed from 1857 to 1859, but he was the best. People begged him to return to playing after he retired, but he refused. He died young at the age of 47 from a stroke. Bernard de Marine was the great-grandson of one of the city's founders who's best known for his love of gambling and bringing the game of hazard, otherwise known as craps, to New Orleans. He was also president of the Louisiana Senate. He owned a large plantation that he subdivided and sold as lots for home development. Some say he did this to pay off his debts, but this venture into real estate was good, as New Orleans was bursting at the seams and people were looking for places to live. He purchased the Bonnebel Plantation and renamed it Fontainebleau. 
He ended up creating St. Tammany's first industrial park on this property by building a brick kiln, sugar mill, blacksmith shop, sawmill, and an infirmary. The Panic of 1837 did him in, though, and he had to sell Fontainebleau. The only thing left today is the ruin of the sugar mill. De Marine died in 1868, and it is said that he was penniless at the time, and there is a street in New Orleans named for him. Bartholomew Lafon was a Creole architect, engineer, city planner, and surveyor in New Orleans. He was French and moved to Louisiana around 1790. The Lower Garden District follows some of his plans, although much of his grand plan for tree-lined canals, fountains, churches, markets, a grand classical school, and a coliseum were never realized. The grid pattern for the streets that he designed does exist, and some of the street names he chose still remain as well. He had originally wanted to name the streets after the nine muses of Greek mythology, Calliope, Cleo, Arati, Thalia, Melpomene, Terpsichore, Euterpe, Polymenia, and Urania. He designed parts of the Bywater and Bayou St. John neighborhoods, and he recommended improvements to the fortifications of New Orleans during the War of 1812. It was after that battle that things went a bit south for Lafon. He decided to join the notorious Lafitte brothers, and he became a pirate and a smuggler. He died from yellow fever in 1820. Ernest N. Dutch Moriel was the first African-American mayor of New Orleans. He served from 1978 to 1986. Moriel was born in 1929 and grew up in the 7th Ward. In 1954, he became the first African-American to receive a law degree from Louisiana State University in Baton Rouge, and he used that degree as he fought to dismantle segregation. He was limited to serving only two terms as mayor, but he tried to convince voters to give him a third term. His tenure as mayor had both its good points and bad, with most of the bad coming in his second term. He'd planned to run for mayor again in 1990, but he passed away in 1989 from complications due to his asthma. Homer Plessy was the plaintiff from the landmark 1896 Plessy v. Ferguson Supreme Court decision on civil rights. He was born on March 17, 1862 in New Orleans, Louisiana. He worked as a shoemaker but came to fame with one act of civil disobedience. He refused to move from a whites-only rail car in 1896. He had purchased a first-class ticket and announced to the conductor that he was one-eighth black. When he refused to leave the car, he was arrested. He protested the violation of his 13th and 14th Amendment rights, and the case came to be known as Plessy v. Ferguson. The Ferguson was Judge John Howard Ferguson who presided over the case. Plessy was found guilty, but the case went on to the U.S. Supreme Court in 1896. During the proceedings, Justice William Billings Brown defined the separate but equal clause, which basically said it was okay as long as each race's public facilities were equal. Arguments from the case were used decades later in the landmark Brown v. Board of Education decision of 1954. Plessy passed away March 1st, 1925, at the age of 62. And if you want to hear more specifics on that case, I know that the girls over at Stuff You Missed in History class did a great episode on that. I'm not sure which one, but if you search their episodes, you will find it. Then we have Marie Laveau. She learned what she did about voodoo from a man named Dr. John. He taught her how to make gris gris bags, how to use voodoo dolls, and how to produce charms and curses. Laveau became a very powerful priestess. Many people came to her for help in all sorts of ways, and some even claim that she used her powers over politicians. I personally think that she probably knew a little bit more about the people around her because she worked as a hairdresser and got all the gossip, so maybe her hold over the politicians was more about blackmail rather than magic. She lived to the ripe old age of 86, and she died of natural causes in her home on June 15, 1881. 
Her tomb in St. Louis Cemetery Number 1 is said to be the most haunted in New Orleans. People visit this final resting place from all over the world. Many come seeking to ask the voodoo queen for a favor, despite the fact that she's been dead for decades. There are a couple of rituals involved with this practice. The first is for the seeker to knock three times on the tomb and then say the request out loud. After the request is fulfilled, the seeker is supposed to return to the tomb with a gift consisting of either coins, liquor, flowers, or a monkey or cock statue. In the past, people would mark the tomb with three X's using paint or a chip of brick, but that practice is illegal now. The second ritual features the seeker drawing an X on the tomb, spinning three times, knocking on the tomb, and yelling out their desire. When it's fulfilled, they are to come back and circle their X and leave an offering. Obviously, because of vandalism, people probably aren't very free to do any of these rituals anymore because you're with a tour guide or a group. And one of the reasons why there was a crackdown was because of the vandalism that happened to this tomb in particular. And one of the things that I heard that had happened to it is that somebody had covered it in pink paint. And you can imagine that latex paint is not good on crypts, to put it on there. You're going to cause all kinds of trouble with that. Now, the Catholic Church was able to restore it. I think it cost them $10,000 to do it. And that's why they really put their foot down and said, nope, we don't want people just wandering around here freely anymore. So because of the acts of a couple of idiots, they ruined it for everybody else. But that's usually how it works, isn't it? St. Louis Cemetery Number 1 is said to be one of the most haunted cemeteries in the world. Ghosts here are said to number in the hundreds, and with 100,000 burials, that could be possible. Visitors have claimed to see phantom figures, particularly those resembling Civil War-era soldiers. Identifying these ghosts is almost impossible, but there are a few that are more well-known. Obviously, Marie Laveau is the most famous spirit here. Her apparition has been witnessed walking among the crypts, and people say she's wearing her turban and can be heard uttering voodoo curses. Strangely, there are some who claim that Laveau appears as a phantom cat prowling the graveyard and that it eventually disappears into Laveau's crypt. The cat's eyes are said to glow red. The ghost of Henry Veens is said to haunt the graveyard. He was a sailor during the 19th century and had no real home. He chose a local boarding house as his place to stay when he was not at sea. He was worried about bringing his important papers with him, so he asked the owner of the boarding house to keep his papers if he died. These papers included his family tombs. The owner told Henry not to worry that she would look after everything, and she sure did. She sold Henry's family tomb, which he found out about as soon as he returned from a voyage. He was very upset, of course, but got sick before he could do anything about it, so he couldn't take the legal matter to court or anything like that because he was just too ill. And that illness did eventually take his life, and now he had nowhere to be buried. So his body was placed in an unmarked grave in the pauper section of St. Louis Cemetery Number 1. And that is probably why his spirit is at unrest. That apparition is described as tall with blue eyes and wearing a white shirt. He looks so real that people think they are talking to an actual person. He sometimes will tap a visitor on the shoulder and ask, Do you know anything about this tomb here? At other times he will ask if they know where his family's old vault is located. He walks away when no one seems to know and then suddenly disappears. That's when they know? I was just talking to a ghost. During funerals, Henry's asked the mourners if there's any room in the vault for his remains, which I'm sure is quite strange. And his apparition apparently has been caught on camera and EVP have recorded him saying, I need to rest. Another lost soul here belongs to Alphonse. He has a tomb, but he seems to want to find a home. People not only see Alphonse, but he touches them, often grabbing their hands as he pulls them to a stop. Gives them a broad smile as he inquires as to whether he can go home with them. His spirit has been seen gathering flowers left at other burials and bringing them over to his vault. Now, this is something I would get a real kick out of witnessing. 
Can you imagine? And this is something I would probably do as a ghost if I was stuck in a cemetery. Hey, nobody's visiting me, but they got some nice flowers over there. I'm going to go grab those. I want to look like I'm really loved. Many think he has a connection to the Panid family and that it's not a very good connection, that either he's afraid of them for some reason. People aren't sure if they bullied him, if they murdered him. They're not sure what the connection is here. People who stand near the Panid vault have been told by Alphonse to stay away from the tomb. And maybe that is because he's afraid of them. He has been seen crying too, and when someone notices, he quickly disappears. All of these cemeteries are very different from each other, but they all have two very important similarities. One is that the dead are honored in some small way. Even if they don't have a headstone, they've at least been left where they lay. And the other is that legends and restless spirits are connected to them. Could these graveyards be harboring the spirits of the long-ago dead? Are these cemeteries haunted? That is for you to decide. And I know the next time I'm in New Orleans, I'm definitely going to buy the tour to go through the cemetery here, St. Louis Cemetery Number 1. I believe when I was there last time, it was like $20. I think that's why we decided not to do it, because I'm like, "Eh, I don't know if I want to pay 20 bucks to go through a cemetery, but I think I might splurge the next time I'm there. We'd love to have you guys check out the website at historyghostbump.com. And if you want to send me some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. You still have a couple of days to get in your flash fiction for the contest. That ends on September 8th, 2018. Looking forward to reading through these stories and finding our three winners and sharing them with all of the listeners. Also be sending in your personal paranormal experiences for the Halloween episode. And isn't it exciting that Halloween is almost upon us and even closer is autumn, my favorite season. I am so looking forward to it. And for those of you who have Wawa's in your areas, they have the pumpkin spice shakes already out there. I've had my first one of the season. I'm very excited. I want to thank those of you who've gone over to Apple Podcasts and left some five-star reviews. I love getting those stars even when you don't leave comments. All of that helps for people to find the show. So thank you for doing that. I want to thank all of you for tuning into this episode. I have been your host, Diane. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We'd like to welcome into the cemetery Gabe Finnegan Viers and Sherry D. Armand. Both of you are getting marble headstones. And Mort just loves carving these headstones. Mort make pretty stones. Mort, you really are getting quite the personality. Cause I got personality. Walk with personality. Talk with personality. Smile with personality. Charm with personality. Love with personality. Plus, I've got a great big heart. Want to keep the spooks away? Give us a review.